Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. This is hour two of our program. I'm filling in for Carmen LeBurge this morning, Peter Kapsner in the host chair, and delightful to be with all of you, having a great time with you as the listeners, with Paul Perot here in studio, and the great guests that are booked for this show each week. And one of those guests who joins us every Friday from PluggedIn.com, Adam Holtz. We're going to bring him in a little early because, Adam, I have a couple questions for you about binge watching and the kinds yes. of things on which our minds dwell. So I don't know if you caught any of the last hour, uh, especially at the end of it, Gary Stratton and I were talking about be informed by things and, and what we access and what we engage with in our life. It really does form the way we think about things. And I thought about you in light of a recent survey that came out that says this. It says a new survey is proving what many already know, that people are losing sleep to binge watch. And of course, you're involved in media uh, all week long. It says the number may be surprising. A whopping 95% of adults up to the age of 44 admit to binging their favorite show on TV or streaming service like Netflix. The American Academy of Sleep Medicine found 72% of adults giving up sleep for video games and 71% to do it to read as opposed to 95% to binge watch. And I do confess, Adam, that sometimes when I get into a TV show that I enjoy, uh, you're given usually about five seconds to shut off Netflix before the next episode starts. Right. And, And I find myself right in it again. Uh, what have you seen over the last few years in terms of people binge watching and how do you handle this? Well, you know, I think binge watching is, it's, you know, a subset of issues of, of self-control, right? I mean, media is always a choice. Am I going to, am I going to engage? Am I going to not, am I not going to engage? That's the fundamental, you know, binary here. And yeah, when Netflix starts the next episode before you can even think about whether you want to watch another right. one, um, especially if it's a show where you know you have a serialized drama, you want to know what happens. So really every episode is a mini cliffhanger. Um, I honestly have not watched too much TV. I'm not much of a TV guy. I'm not sure. I, I don't know why. But having said that, you know – we have done all three seasons of Stranger Things, and um, I don't know if the way that we have watched qualifies as binge watching. I don't know that we typically have watched more than two episodes at once. Uh, but you get done with one, and you know you look at your spouse, and you're like, "Well, are we going to do another one or not?" Because <laughs> because you want to know what happens, right? And you don't want it to be spoiled because the people at work are talking about it around the proverbial water cooler. So you know, I think that there's a there's a human nature thing here. But I also think that, you know, going back to your original point, we have been conditioned to engage more and more and more with screens. And so, you know, we don't stop and ask the question that, you know, our grandparents might have asked of, do you really need to watch another episode right now? Mm-hmm. So what initially might have been a novelty or strange or, you know, self-evidently unhealthy, now it's just normal. 
You know, it's like, well, yeah, we watched six episodes last night and I stayed up all night to watch it because <laughs> I wanted to know what was going to happen. And, you know, I think it speaks to another thing. We desire to be filled, right? Yeah. You know, Psalm 1611 says, you will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. We're hardwired to want to be filled. And if we're not seeking God for that, we're going to look for something else. And, and, you know, binge watching TV is sort of low hanging fruit. Yeah, it really is. It does remind me back uh, before all of this when I would read maybe some John Grisham novels, for example, like The Firm or A Time to Kill or Pelican yeah. Reef, and they're designed exactly what you just said, that at the end of each chapter was sort of almost this little cliffhanger that would drag me to the next one, and so I would binge read maybe until way late in the night. But right. boy, it's it's a really different ballgame to be watching three, four, five, six episodes in a row. Your mind really does get shaped by all of that. So let's we'll take a short break here, Adam, and get back into this conversation a little bit more as well as address some sad news from the Christian community this week, and that was sort of the admissions of Christian community, uh, comedian John Christ that came out with some pretty difficult revelations. And I want to get your take on that here next on Mornings with Carmen. Of course, those horns are for Adam Holtz, who's already joined us a bit this morning on Mornings with Carmen. And Adam, uh, some pretty difficult news coming out this week. I know I was in class, actually, on Wednesday morning, and I'm, I really do enjoy good Christian comedians. I especially like when they sort of hit some of the bounds of a reverence that poke fun at some of the Christian social things that sometimes we do. And, and again, Tim Hawkins really makes me laugh with some of the music that he does. And one of my students said, have you heard of a guy named John Christ? And, and I hadn't, quite frankly, at that point. I know he was on tour. And so that was Wednesday morning. And then Wednesday evening, Carmen sent me a note and Paul Perot a note as well that uh, was the news headlines that came out that were pretty difficult and some revelations around uh, some sexual sin that he had entered into. So tell our listeners about the story and kind of how you're processing that right now. Well, I mean, it seems pretty similar to so many of the other sexual misconduct stories that we have heard in the last couple of years. And I mean, the the short version is that uh, Charisma, the website, did a sort of investigative journalist uh, article that shows that there are multiple women who are accusing him of manipulation, of sending sex, of pressuring them for sexual favors to get tickets to shows. Um, And he has come out and, and basically said, you know, some of this is true and I'm trying to get help for it. So, um, yeah, it feels like a carbon copy of, of so much of what we have seen. And I think yeah. it, it saddens me, <clears throat> but it doesn't surprise me. And, and I don't say that from a cynical perspective, but again, going back to our previous conversation, if our relationship with God is struggling or if we're not, you know, really grounded in that, we're looking for something to fill us. We're looking for a transcendent experience. And for many people, sexuality is the next thing on the list. Um, and it sounds like there has been, you know, some compulsive behavior here. Uh, I think what's more disturbing to me is that, you know, this article says people have you know, suspected it's been kind of an open secret, Mm. you know, for several years. And sometimes I think we in the Christian community, we may want to look past allegations or insinuations that something is happening because we like somebody. And, you know, I've watched a 
a lot of John Crist videos. I, um, I, he's funny. I, I really like his stuff. And so we don't want to believe that someone that we admire and that we enjoy uh, could be doing this. And so it's, it's easy to, um, to look past. And I think what's disturbing is he used his fame to, to garner influence over women who just admired him. And that's just sad. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think sad captures my entire response here. Uh, sad, not surprised. I hope that he is able to get to a point where he can take responsibility fully for what has happened. But we're also living in this cancel culture hmm. where it's one strike and you're out forever. And I think he's going to have a hard time. And I think especially when you layer the faith element back into the mix, um, I think that, that we'll be able to forgive him. But I, I think his career is probably over for right now. Yeah, I agree. It is such a sad thing. And like you said, it's not surprising on some levels. And I know I so often am with my students uh, week in and week out. And, and some of the, the invitation is, is they, they will say things like, well, I absolutely am a Christian. But there's so often what you just described, not the sense that the, that God's joy, God's peace, God's love, that he's actually real and can fill those voids in our heart and how quickly it is that we can fill those voids with other things. It just seems to be happening pretty continuously these days. It does. And I think about, you know, the parable of the sower in Mark 4, and Jesus said the people's, you know, faith was choked out by the deceitfulness of wealth, the, the, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things. And so this raises to a bar, raises to a point where it crosses an ethical and moral line. But, you know, a lot of the rest of us, we can seek to fill our hearts with materialism, with binge eating, with binge watching. Like there are areas where we, we desire that sense of fulfillment, and we may be trying to fill them in things that aren't going to make the news, but that nevertheless aren't getting the job done. And I say that uh, with one finger pointed at you and four pointed yeah. back at myself, yeah. you know, uh, I, I know that I, I like stuff. <laughs> mm. I, I, you know, I like food. There are things that I can choose that aren't going to get the job done. And all of us hopefully are, are in relationships where we can talk honestly about those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, you often join us, obviously, to cover different movies and uh, different video games, different TV shows, and we don't have a lot of time to do that part of it here in the segment. But I did see that there's a list of four movies coming out. It doesn't look like any of them are earth-shattering between Arctic Dogs, Last Christmas, Playing with Fire, and Midway. But if I had some time this evening and wanted to go to one of those four movies, what would you suggest? Well, it depends on what you're interested in. I mean, uh, Arctic Dogs is kind of a silly throwaway animated film. Uh, I'd probably pass on that. Um, Playing with Fire is a family comedy about uh, a firefighter played by John Cena, and they end up with three kids in the firehouse, and it kind of has that Home Alone goofy vibe. Uh, Last Christmas is uh, <clears throat> a romantic comedy with Amelia Clark. And she's kind of a sad sack loser, if you can get your head around that concept, with Amelia, with Amelia Clark, um, who meets a guy who really turns her life around. But it's got quite a bit of sensual material. Personally, for my money, I'd probably go see Midway because I'm a history and a World War II buff, and it's about the Battle of Midway. Um, really, really engaging movie that emphasizes uh, the brave soldiers and sailors uh, and the sacrifices they made. Quite a bit of violence and quite a bit of profanity, though. So that's the 
that's the speed round on those. That's great. And it sounds like Hollywood seems to be in a bit of a run when it comes to World War II movies these days with Dunkirk or whatever these different movies are. Is there, yeah. Do you see this from time to time where Hollywood, they sort of copycat each other and they create movies within the same genre pretty, pretty regularly? Well, you know, I wonder if, you know, there's an intern and somebody gets up one morning and says, <laughs> hey, come back through all the great war movies and let's see what we can remake. Because obviously everybody who was anybody was in the 1976 version of Midway. I mean, it's like a who's who's list of Hollywood. Everybody is in that film. You're getting an uh, amen from Paul Pro in studio right now just on that idea <laughs> for sure. Um, and I actually think that might have been a more entertaining movie, but this one is definitely more historically accurate in a number of points. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think that we're hungry for heroism, too. And so we're going back and mining those tales and looking for new ways to tell those stories. Hmm. It's the voice of Adam Holtz, who joins us from PluggedIn.com. Again, if you're listening, it's such a great site to go that gives you enough feedback and sort of windows into what you might anticipate seeing if you're going to go to a movie with your kids or your grandkids. So again, PluggedIn.com. And Adam, we'll take a short break. When we come back, got to ask you some questions about the potential resurrection from a CGI standpoint of James Dean and maybe even some of the ethics around that in movies moving forward. So more to come here with Adam Holtz. Stay with us here in a couple minutes. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for the day for Carmen the Burge, and we're chatting with Adam Holtz from PluggedIn.com about different things in the world of entertainment. And Adam, I remember when I saw the movie Rogue One, which is kind of the filler movie in between some of the Star Wars stories, and there was kind of this dramatic moment at the end of Rogue One where a young Princess Leia, a young Carrie Fisher, dressed as she was at the start of Episode Four uh, of Star Wars, dressed as she was, and she was CGI and imposed into the movie. And it was sort of this moment where you gasped out loud and said, oh, my gosh, Princess Leia is here right now tying these stories together. And yet it seemed to me to be a little bit disturbing as well because she didn't look quite right. And we're seeing more and more of this in some new headlines with maybe James Dean being resurrected. So talk about this and some of your thoughts around it. Well, this is happening enough now that there's a there's a phrase for it. They call it the uncanny valley. And it's kind of a fun little tagline, but it's this sense of. Oh, that looks right. Oh, it doesn't look right. And obviously, uh, in Rogue One, we also had a digital recreation of Peter Cushing as Grand Moff Tarkin, who I thought was actually more convincing than the Carrie Fisher CGI version that we got. But the technology is still not there to do it seamlessly. And so our reaction as a viewer is... Ooh, something that feels a little creepy here, but the technology is getting better all the time. And so it's no surprise that we just got word that uh, the likeness of James Dean is going to be starring, was starring in uh, quote marks, uh, in a new Vietnam War era movie um, and uh, called Finding Jack about finding a lost dog uh, in Vietnam and he's going to be one of the two main stars. And, you know, I have a couple reactions. Um, my first reaction is just, ew, I, I'm not interested in it. My second reaction is the article says that his family signed off on it, and it's a bit of a cynical reaction. I thought, well, they must need the money. Why else would you sign off on it? Um, but I think we're certainly going to be seeing more and more of this. I expect that the technology will continue to incrementally get better so maybe there will come a moment where we can't tell the difference between something that's real and something that's fake. But 
frankly, that creates ethical and, and philosophical questions of its own. Um, but for me, the whole thing just kind of, it gives me the creeps. And I would also say that there's a difference between one or two scenes and, and really casting somebody in a lead role that is, uh, you know, completely CGI. But I think we can expect to see more of it. Yeah, and certainly there seems to be some of the danger of maybe actually diminishing the actual person as opposed to, yeah. you know, just remembering back and being grateful. But suddenly they appear and they're not as they were. And the whole thing gets really kind of weird and blurry. Does that kind of diminish what our memories are, are supposed to be related to these things? No, I think it does. And, and I think James Dean is such an interesting uh, case study in um, the Hollywood machine at work. I mean, he died when he was 24. Um, and obviously rebel without a cause was his, uh, his big star vehicle. And he did a couple other things, but it wasn't like he even had that long of a career. Um, but he's become this sort of mythic Hollywood figure. Um, and, and I think, yeah, it does diminish the memory of who he really was. Uh, but, but technology is going to continue to push us into, ethical and philosophical and I think theological questions about what's right, what's wrong, what should we do with this. Hmm. And what essentially makes us a person at the end of the day. Is it and what makes a, us a person. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot there. Well, And certainly we saw some of this alluded to in the Marvel movies that have become so popular, like uh, the Infinity War and, and, uh, and Endgame. And we saw, without being too much of a spoiler, we saw some holographic imagery of Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man uh, sort of persisting past his death and into the next life with his kids. And the Marvel movies bring up an interesting point even, too, when it comes to entertainment. And, and Martin Scorsese, among some other really big-name directors, has really taken the, the Marvel movies to task for not being actual cinema. The writing's so poor, he would say that the script writing needs to really make a better point than that. So what was your reaction to Scorsese and others really taking Marvel to task on this? Oh, you know, I'm of two different minds. Martin Scorsese is somebody who cares deeply about telling engaging stories, uh, but it felt a little bit like get off my yard. You know, my story is better than your story. You know, he said specifically in a New York Times op-ed sort of explaining his point, he said, well, it's not there in comic book movies is revelation, mystery, or genuine emotional danger. Nothing is at risk. Hmm. The pictures are made to satisfy a certain set of demands, and they are designed as variations on a finite number of themes. And I get what he's saying. But I also know that at the end of Infinity War, mm -hmm. uh, you know, yes. when really, really bad things happen, man, the theater was as silent as a pin drop. And I remember people weeping at the end of Endgame. And so to say that there's no genuine emotional danger, uh, it's fine if Martin Scorsese doesn't like superhero movies. But I don't think Endgame would have made two and a half billion dollars <laughs> if it didn't actually scratch some of those storytelling itches. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of the superhero movies feel repetitive. They do feel similar to the last one. There is a template. Uh, but somebody could say that indie movies do the same thing. You know, you have a lot of bad things happen to people and people use the F word a lot. You could say that <laughs> about most of Scorsese's movies. So it feels to me like, on one hand, I agree. And on another hand, it feels like a very subjective judgment and I think that Marvel has done a good job of actually making us care about these characters. And so I think the popularity actually in some ways rebuts 
some of the things that Scorsese had to say. Yeah, agreed. It felt a bit sanctimonious to me and on a few different levels on that. So, Adam, before I let you run, we obviously have a big holiday season coming up when a lot of the major movies are going to be released. Are there one or two movies coming up here in November, December that you're looking forward to seeing? Well, we got Frozen 2 in a couple weeks, and I'm holding my breath to hope they don't do something really bad with that. Uh, We have Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which is a Mr. Rogers-oriented movie, which I have seen. I can't wait to talk about it. It's my favorite movie this year. Um, For me, it was a total home run, and it's definitely worth uh, consideration. Um, And then as we get into December, obviously we're in the final countdown for – uh, you know, cue the Europe song right there uh, <laughs> for uh, Star Wars Episode Nine. And again, can JJ fix the problems that, from my opinion, Episode Eight introduced? We'll see. Yeah. We will see. So, you know, a couple of big, pretty big heavy hitters yet to come. Well, I always appreciate your insight and walking us through this. And again, if you're listening, I highly recommend heading to PluggedIn.com to see some of the reviews there. So have a great weekend ahead, Adam. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Take a short break here for uh, some Breakpoint and Bottom of the Hour News. And when we come back for the last segment of our show, we'll be talking with Jonathan Routley about messy Christianity and the dangers if we just keep wallowing in our faith. Pretty interesting Breakpoint, Paul Perot. is sort of filling in the theme of the morning to some degree. We talked with Gary Stratton at yeah. the last half of last hour a little bit about being informed by media and TV shows and the power of script writing. And, of course, Adam Holtz mm-hmm. just joining us and talking about that same thing. And now we're talking about uh, Breakpoint, yeah. Harry at the movie and, and sort of the impact. And it really, this idea of formation and this idea that I, I think subtly so, we sort of just walk through our days and we don't realize by the things by which we might be formed in terms of then how we see one another, how we see the world. And it really does talk about the need to create space throughout the day to really think about God's kingdom and to dwell in God's kingdom and to sit in God's presence and related to that to give us some sort of anchoring in the midst of all of this stuff. Yeah, I don't know where to go with that apart from saying, yeah, uh, we spend so much of our time, and I'm guilty as anybody else, a little too much time, maybe social media or looking at news headlines because part of my job has me doing that. Instead of just spending time focusing on God or sitting back, pulling back, as Gary was talking about, and listen to the story that you just heard and think it through. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I appreciate the break point, too, to some extent. We we try to uh, parent our kids. We don't always succeed, Hallie and me, but with the idea that we want to be with our kids as they're watching these shows and not just throwing them to the wolves, because I think sometimes we forget how kids really are not at a, a maturity level to really process these things, and we mm-hmm. throw stuff in front of them, sometimes at really early ages, and then we end up where we end up. So it's one of those, I think it's just an invitation, again, to remember that there is a kingdom in which our mind can dwell. It's a kingdom of hope and peace, and it really can be uh, an anchor in the midst of the storms of this world. We'll take a short break. When we come back, be joined by Jonathan Routley, and he wrote a very compelling article on the Gospel Coalition about the idea of the dangers of just wallowing in our Christianity. What does it mean to be real about the struggles, but then to find hope and victory in the midst of them? So we'll cover that next year on Mornings with Carmen. Ever feel like you're the only family around who has problems? <laughs> well, relax. I heard someone say recently, the only normal families in the world are those you don't know very well. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Don't spend undue energy fussing over your imperfections. If you have conflict in your home, you're perfectly normal. Hey, most parents are surprised when those little innocent ones begin to act out their newfound independence as young adults. Teens say stuff and do stuff that's sometimes shocking. But don't make the mistake of thinking that you're the only family who's struggling. 
Trust me, lots of parents are struggling and no family is perfect. So mom, dad, don't allow the struggles to drag you down. Keep the end goal in mind. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Welcome back to the show. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Karma LaBerge here this morning, enjoying my time with you as listeners again, thinking about all these different dimensions of life in God's beautiful kingdom. And we're joined at this time by Jonathan Rowley, who wrote a great article on Gospel Coalition, highly recommended, and it's titled The Three Dangers of Merely Messy Christianity. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Peter. It's great to have you with us. I appreciate uh, even just what you had to say in this article, and it made me think back to a time before we get into maybe some of the dangers of messy Christianity, where I was part of a church situation where it was actually really helpful to sort of break through maybe some of the Christian social games that we play or some of the maybe games to pretend and the masks that we wear, where the church really emphasized the message of God's grace, that we didn't have to live in fear, that God obviously knew we were sinful and are sinful people. And so let's just bring that sin into the light from out of the darkness and begin to experience God's grace. And so before we get some uh, into the dangers of this, there really is a rightly ordered invitation in this as well, right? To be real with, with uh, stuff that we're struggling with. Absolutely. I, I really tried to find a, a balance in this article between warning against complacency in the Christian life on one hand, but on the other hand, sort of uh, going inwardly and, and not sharing uh, some of the details of our lives, that would be the other end of the uh, pendulum swing as well. So want to make sure that that wasn't communicated in that way. Uh, it's important to make sure that we're open and honest with other people because there is a struggle in the Christian life. And I think related to that, then, as we acknowledge the struggle and, and begin to enter into what's being real, that does give us hope to find uh, what I love how Dallas Willard says, God's redemptive resources that are ever at hand, because really the heart of the gospel, Jonathan, and you say it so well in this article, is that it isn't just about messy complacency. The heart of the gospel really is the possibility of an ongoing joyful transformation because the power of sin and death has been broken. And it doesn't mean we're not subject to it on this side, but we are invited to experience the beautiful redemption that awaits us in the future, at least in part in this life. I think that's absolutely right, and and as I talk about this in the article, uh, kind of go into the details about how some of these uh, mindsets of of just being complacent with what we're at, it can become uh, really a, a pessimistic view of the Christian life, rather than uh, looking to the Spirit's enablement to help us overcome sin. Uh, in our lives, we just sort of become, uh, it becomes an accepted thing that we're familiar with and we uh, don't maybe struggle or war against it to move beyond it. Well, and, it, and it's difficult that if there isn't at least some kind of uh, authentic victory, I don't mean the games of pretend victory where we try to claim things about our faith that aren't true or we try to pretend through a series of behaviors to kind of manage things on the outside. But what really does bear witness to this beautiful kingdom is when, when Jesus really does increasingly set us free from some kind of power and sin in our life, it does bear witness to, to a kind of kingdom that doesn't persist or exist in this world. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think um, sometimes, like you said, it's very hard to see that. And there, we can go through periods in our Christian lives where um, we just, it seems like the struggle is unending um, without uh, a lot of view of uh, maybe triumph over a particular thing, or there's something that we just keep struggling with that it seems like we're we're never able to overcome. But uh, sort of the purpose of, of why I was writing is to encourage uh, persistence in uh, spiritual warfare in the Christian life so that we can uh, continue on in our faith and uh, not simply throw our hands up and say, well, I'm never going to be perfect uh, this side of glory, so what's the use in even trying? I think that's a mentality that I was really trying to warn against and that I see uh, becoming more and more prevalent in uh, our Christian culture today. Mm, well, and before we get into three of the specific dangers you reference in this article, I need just one more thought on this. And you talk about the word persistence or use the word persistence a second ago. And I think that we have to be aware of that so often God isn't sort of a genie in the bottle as much as we would like him to be here. We pray a prayer some night, however earnest that God would set us free, and we expect by the next morning everything's going to be free. It really, this process of formation and transformation can take quite a bit of time towards freedom, and for reasons we don't always understand, but uh, to put our hands in the hands of the great physician is, is that invitation to keep walking it down in persistence, is it not? That's absolutely right. Yeah, the Christian life is a day-to-day struggle. Paul describes it as uh, uh, struggle in warfare, struggle as in uh, athletic competition. So it is uh, sometimes a very grueling process. We we look for the magic solutions that will take us from point A to point B, where we mature spiritually quickly. Uh, but that's not the way the biblical text presents the Christian life. It's a day-to-day development as we follow after Christ, we're gradually, progressively sanctified by Him, drawn into His uh, uh, presence more closely, transformed into His image day-to-day. And sometimes uh, we just don't see the changes day-to-day. Sometimes it takes a long time before we can see transformation or the results of it happen. It's Jonathan Rowley. We're talking about his article on the Gospel Coalition. You can see it at gospelcoalition.org, and it's titled The Three Dangers of Merely Messy Christianity. Jonathan, when we come back from a short break, let's get into those three dangers that you referenced, because it can provide some helpful insight as we continue to walk out this struggle towards hope and victory and freedom. So stay with us here if you're listening. More to come with Jonathan Rowley next. Continuing our conversation with Jonathan Rowley here on the dangers of messy Christianity if we simply embrace the struggle and don't seek to move beyond it. And Jonathan, you have three pretty important points in this article to think through specifically on this subject. The first one being that it risks normalizing sin. What do you mean by that? When I wrote that, what I was really looking to get at is the uh, the idea that in the, the Christian life, sometimes when we have the mentality that Uh, that the Christian life is messy, uh, we can fall into the trap of thinking that our normal experience should be one of not just struggle with sin, but really losing to sin. Um, And so it normalizes the experience of maybe failure in the Christian life, sinfulness that 
uh, we cannot overcome. Uh, and so we've just become comfortable with it. It's the mess that's around us. And um, I think there's a danger in that, in that we, we minimize, uh, and this is the second point as well, it leads right into uh, minimizing the struggle against sin. So normalizing sin sees sin as something that we can't really overcome in our Christian lives. And there's that famous passage in Romans 6, verse 23, where it says that the wages of sin is death. And I think sometimes we might get a little confused biblically that the word death there is simply a synonym for hell. And uh, when you get into the original language of the New Testament, the word death there is actually the idea of a misery of the soul that arises from sin. And, and it starts in this life and persists. And so if we embraced sin, as you just referenced, we are actually embracing a bit of misery in life because sin doesn't stay static. It continues to enslave us. It continues to blind us and it continues to harden our hearts that if we just sort of say, hey, this is the deal, we really do risk compromising the power of a witness moving forward. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. You know, sin really isn't content to just have a small part of us and stay there. If if we have uh, if we have sin in our lives, it's going to uh, desire more, or sin is going to increase if we allow it to fester. If we're, if we're not waging war against it, it's going to take ground in our Christian life, uh, rather than just staying uh, the small little thing that it is, it wants to overcome. Uh, sin is crouching at our door, to use uh, biblical terminology from uh, the book of Genesis. Yeah, and and, uh, before we move into your third point about diluting the cross and what happened at the beautiful events of uh, Good Friday, you referenced the idea that we are to put on the armor of God, a spiritual uniform of Christ-like attributes in the battle against, quote, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. How do we put on armor in that famous passage of Ephesians that talks about the breastplate of righteousness and the the sword and the uh, the helmet of salvation and all of this? How do we do that in a day-to-day basis? Oh, such a great question. And I was just going through some students with in my class uh, teaching first-year theology a couple days ago on this. I think there's a big misconception about what spiritual warfare looks like. If you look at this passage in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, what Paul's doing there is really restating, I think, in metaphorical terms what he's already talked about in chapters 4 and 5. So when we fight the, the spiritual warfare, Christian warfare, we are simply to go about our day-to-day lives seeking to act Christ-like in all that we do. And that's how we wage war against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So what does it mean to take up the breastplate of righteousness? It simply means to live righteously in our lives, to seek holiness in our lives from day to day as we war against uh, these spiritual forces of evil. Um, Putting on uh, truth means uh, speaking truth with one another, seeking to uh, minimize and eradicate falsehood in our lives. And so to struggle in the Christian life really uh, is not something that we attempt to do on another Uh, spiritual realm. It's how we live in the here and now, day to day, in our relationships uh, with other people primarily. 
to the last point, Jonathan, here in terms of the mess is that it does risk diluting the power of the cross. And you write this in the article, a very compelling phrase, that Jesus vanquished sin and death, and our lives should testify to the victory as he progressively transforms us into his own image. Again, not all at once, but he bore the penalty of sin for us and here broke the power of sin in us. We aren't yet home, but we are indeed on the way. And I've heard theologians describe the fact that as Christians, we shine the light of our future home uh, in the present, and it calls people back to the reconciling relationship with God. That really is the power of the cross. Yeah, I think that's, that's again, absolutely right. And when we have this mentality that uh, of expectation that sin is just going to continue to uh, persist against us and we're not going to be triumphant over, uh, over it, it leads us into a, a mentality that really uh, minimizes the cross of Jesus Christ um, in that it, it, he didn't die. I think I wrote this as well in the article. Jesus didn't die so that we could live a complacent Christian life, a half-hearted Christian life. He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so he does, his desire for us is to uh, wage war against our sinful flesh with the intent that through those things, through the very struggles that we're uh, engaging in, he's using all of those to transform us into his image as this life continues on. Well, Jonathan, I'd love to wrap up our time by a final quote here in the article that, again, I think is another one of the powerful pieces of this. You say this, we're not called to celebrate brokenness in community by overemphasizing our spiritual failures. We are called to courageously combat sin and evil in the context of a covenant community through the supernatural power of the risen Christ. And that really does speak to the heart of the gospel. So, Jonathan, thanks for this work and thanks for what you're doing. If you're listening again this morning, highly recommend going to thegospelcoalition.org and checking out this article about messy Christianity. Have a great weekend ahead, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Take a short break here and wrap up our show for the weekend. Head into the weekend here on Mornings with Carmen. Well, so enjoyable again to be with you wherever you are listening, however you are listening as part of this Faith Radio community. It's a great show today just being able to be with people like Matthew Hawkins and Gary Stratton and Adam Holtz and, of course, now Jonathan Routley. So many different dimensions of the kingdom represented here. Paul Perot, delightful to be with you. you, know, you Good to you in again. You get up in these mornings like this, right? And I hope it's true of the people listening as well, that it's just a place that feels like a, a sort of a daily Sabbath during the week where we can rest and reorient and fix our eyes again on Jesus. Remember that we really are part of this eternal kingdom, that, that it gives us a sense of identity and defines what our journey can look like moving forward. You expect me to say something? I have, well, I've got nothing. I'm just, I'm in awe. I guess I'm just monologuing right now. I'm trying to do the best I can to represent this beautiful Savior that we serve. And I was thinking a little bit about what Jonathan Routley was saying about the power of the cross. And it called into mind this great passage from Colossians that I'll leave you as listeners with this weekend to think about in terms of what Jesus did accomplish with that cross and the empty tomb. Says this in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has, in fact, taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And then I love this verse. And he, in so doing, has disarmed the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them. 
by the cross. And that is the great hope that we profess. That is the great hope we confess day in and day out as we as believers in this struggle continue to try to manifest the power of God's kingdom and shine his beautiful light in the world. So have a great weekend, everybody. We will catch you soon again here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.